Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, have mercy on us now. We, we are about to be called, I know, to swim upstream against our culture in ways that are beautiful and challenging. And so we ask for the help of your spirit to make the word clear to us as a church family and to each one of us. And you might give us hearts that trust you and believe that this path you are calling us to is, is our best path because you, because you lead us in it and we trust you. And so now may your word be exalted by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Earlier this year, I got an email and it started, it started like this. It says, uh, well, see, this is going to hurt you, maybe a lot, I don't know. Maybe you won't be too surprised that this, after all, you know me, maybe. But here it is, I'm not a Christian. Yep, I said it. And this, this fellow who was a professing Christian has chosen um, to no longer live as a Christian. What do you do when a professing Christian denies their faith? Um, do you shun them? Do you avoid them? Do you pretend like everything's okay, nothing's really different? Do you belittle them? Do you, sp do you speak ill of them? Do you hold them up as a cautionary tale for your children? Um, do you march expeditiously through the steps of Matthew 18, those four efficient steps where you confront them, you bring along a couple people, you tell the church, and then you remove them from the fellowship and, and out of sight, out of mind, and you wash your hands of the whole affair? What do you do when a professing Christian denies their faith? Um, we, need to, we need to think about this together as a church family today because that email is from one of our brothers here in our church. It's from one of our members, and he has chosen to no longer live life as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. Um, this morning, we as a church family need God's wisdom about what we must do and the heart with which we must do it when one of our own denies their faith. And so we are going to step out of the book of Acts. In fact, with the holidays, we'll be out of the book of Acts until the new year. Um, this morning, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 18. You can open up your Bibles there. And it contains the clearest teaching of Jesus about what to do when someone falls into sin and is unwilling to repent. There are four steps, four levels of instruction from Jesus. But often we pay attention to that section without paying attention to what precedes it and what follows it. Um, those sections which address the heart which must lay behind this God-given process of rescue for our brothers and sisters when they fall into sin and will refuse to repent. So look with me, Jesus' instruction on church discipline or church rescue start in verse 15, but we're going to back up to verse 12 in chapter 18 where Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, just one, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven 
that one of these little ones should perish. Now, if you were to read a little bit farther back in Matthew 18, um, it's already been made clear that these little ones are, in fact, not, not babies. He's not talking about children. He's talking about believers, that believers in Jesus are the little ones that he has in mind here. And in Jesus' story, what he's teaching us is that the Father chases them down when they stray so that he can rescue them. When they wander away from him, when they wander away from their father, when they have gone astray, when they've fallen into sin and are unwilling to turn from it, the father himself pursues them to rescue them. He leaves the 99 and he seeks the one. The one matters. The father loves the one. He pursues the one. The father would leave the 99 to pursue you. And this is important for our conversation this morning. He would leave the 99 for the person next to you too. Each one, every one matters to the Father. So Jesus says, it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one, even one of these little ones should perish. So if we want to be like our Father, if we want to represent Him well, if we want to obey Him and walk in His will, then we must be pursuers too, right? We, we must also be involved in rescue. So when one of our brothers or sisters at Northwake wanders off from the Father into all kinds of dangers and perils for their soul, we pursue them. <clears throat> we don't just turn away and say, oh, well, that, that was too bad. If we want to be like the Father, we don't just shake our heads and write them off. We pursue relentlessly with great loving care and concern. And when we think about doing that, it raises a couple of questions that Jesus addresses in the passages that follow. First one is, how do we do that? How do we pursue in love? And secondly, what if it works? Okay. What happens then? So let's take the first question first. How do we do that? How do we rescue those <clears throat> excuse me, who have wandered off and gone astray? And Jesus, in the next few verses, tells us how to do that. In verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, the, the first thing you need to notice here is that brothers, and we can happily include sisters, they sin, okay? And they sin against you. And if you've been in church for more than a day, this is not a surprise to you, okay? Um, but it is always a disappointment when someone in the church wrongs you. Um, but Jesus is clear, this happens. It goes on. And what he's going to do now is unfold four escalating levels of rescue, spiritual rescue, that we are to undertake when one of our number wanders off from the Father and into sin and is unwilling to turn from it. Now, it's important to recognize here that we are talking about sin when someone sins against you, not about someone bothering you or irritating you, or annoying you, or differing from you, or disagreeing with you, or just generally ticking you off. That's not what we're talking about. 
Jesus' concern here is that someone has sinned against you. And the whole orientation for Jesus is it's really not about me. Okay? It's about the other person. It's about reconciling with them, restoring our relationship, and restoring them to a right relationship with God. So that when sin happens and it ensnares someone deeply, a spiritual rescue is in order. And Jesus says the first level happens one-on-one. Okay? One-on-one. You go, he says, between you and him alone. Um, You are to go to him or her. It is a command from Jesus. Okay. And with these kinds of wounds that we're talking about, time does not heal them. Time just allows them to fester. And for the distance and awkwardness and hurtfulness to grow. So you are, as a follower of Jesus, to go to the one, even if they're the one who wronged you. It's on you to go. Just like the Father and the one, right? Okay. Just as the Father pursues the one who strayed from Him, we pursue in love. And notice what Jesus says next, right? If He listens to you, you have gained your brother. This stuff works. Jesus says, this will work if you will go to your brother or your sister and sit down and graciously and wisely explain to them how they've wronged you. This works. You can gain your brother or your sister back. That way the relationship can be fully and beautifully restored. But the the kind of back-end implication of this is if you don't, You can lose them. You can lose them. So, Jesus expects this to work, but he knows us well enough to know that it doesn't always work. Okay? And when it doesn't, he's got another level he wants our rescue to escalate to. We are not to give up. You cannot say, well, I did my part. I went. I went. I did it. That's not enough. Jesus says we do not give up. We do not stop loving. It goes to another level. And what Jesus says at this point in verse 16, he says, If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now... We go again to our wayward brother or sister who's ensnared in a sin with one or two others. Likely these are church leaders of some sort. Um, And that expression um, that every charge may be established by the two or three witnesses comes from Deuteronomy. It gives almost a legal feel to this. They are to be witnesses. But this is to help assure that this is not just some kind of he said, she said thing, but to actually um, validate the concern of the one who has strayed, right? But it also ups the spiritual firepower. Now there are two or three more who will pray and plead with that person to turn from their sin. If this does not work, if even this does not work, we are not to give up. We are not to stop loving. Jesus teaches us that we are to move to yet another level of rescue. In verse 17, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, to the two or three witnesses, 
then tell it to the church. Now, Jesus says, the whole church is to be brought into play, and they are to be called to pray and to pursue this wayward one in love. At North Wake, we have a church discipline policy, and it talks about this idea of telling it to the church this way. It says, telling it to the church means that the congregation will be informed about the general nature of the sin, given a general description of the process that has taken place, and about the refusal to repent. They will be asked to pray for and plead with the offender to repent and pursue the person for the purpose of restoration. Personal visits, telephone calls, letters are examples of what it means to pursue them. The church is to keep on loving them and seek their restoration. Now, this usually happens at one of our corporate prayer gatherings on Sunday night. And these then become times of powerful and humble, intense intercession for the one who's been ensnared and led away from Christ. If you are a member of North Wake, participating in those times is how you honor Jesus' instruction here at this level of rescue, that that would be a priority for you. And you need to know if you're a member of North Wake, we have one of those gatherings tonight at 6 o'clock for the brother whose email I was talking about at the beginning of this time. We'll be gathering to pray for him. Okay. Now, it is a members-only gathering. If you're just an attender and haven't become a member of our church yet, we would ask you to not participate tonight here, but that you might pray for us at home. Because this is very, very earnest business that we're about uh, tonight as a church family. We will have limited child care, um, so you may not be able to bring all 500 of your children to this event. Um, so um, you may just want to make sure that you have a family representative here. And this gathering tonight is not appropriate for children because we really want to protect our brother's privacy and we don't have confidence that our children will know when it's appropriate to talk about these things and when it's not, nor that they'll fully understand them. So this is a members-only uh, gathering tonight, and I, I trust that you'll make that a priority. Um, so tonight we'll be called to pray and to plead with our brother on his, his behalf, on behalf of the one, right? Just like the Father. Now, if even that doesn't work, we do not give up. We do not stop loving and pursuing the one. Um, Instead, Jesus is going to teach us about a very extreme and rare tactic that is to be employed at this point. In our passage, Jesus describes this final level of pursuit this way. He says, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And it's interesting that he says it that way. Refuse to listen even to the church as though you can't imagine that somebody wouldn't listen to the loving concern of their church. That, that it's almost unimaginable to Jesus that somebody would even do this. See, because the, the, this tells you the prayer and the pleading of the church is a powerful thing in Jesus' mind. And he expects those who would refuse that to be very, very rare and almost astounding is the way it comes off. Um, now, some have suggested that what it means to treat someone like a Gentile or a pagan or a tax collector is to treat them the way Jesus taught them and to love them and to include them and to have dinner with them. Um, that is not, I'm, I'm confident, that is not what Jesus is teaching us here. 
He teaches us that elsewhere for those outside the church family. But here, he's talking to Jews. Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels. And he is talking to them about how they would treat a tax collector or a Gentile. And you put this up along some similar passages and teachings in the New Testament, uh, like 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul writes about a similar situation. He writes this. He says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And just a few verses later, he's going to tell them to remove this man from their midst so that the meaning in Jesus' teaching here as well as in Paul seems to clearly be that of exclusion of removal from the church and her spiritual protection for the purpose of, and this is very important, even this action that Paul says is turning them over to Satan is for the purpose, as he says, of saving their spirit in the day of the Lord. So that even this final extreme step of removing someone from our church holds out the hope of having them come to their senses and turn from their sin and be reunited with their church family and with Christ. Okay. Now, at Northwake, when we have had to walk out this process, which has been rare, we have seen people repent after this point in time, after they've been removed from our fellowship, that God used that as part of the process to help them repent and return to walking with Christ. Now, there are a number of others. We are still waiting and praying for that to happen, people who have been removed from our fellowship as a result of their unwillingness to listen even to the church. Now, if you became a new member in the church probably in the last 10 years, you know that I, when I come into the new members class, this is what I teach. Okay? I, I explain to you how this process we're talking about today works. And every member of our church um, gives their yes to this process, says, yes, I am willing to be part of this process in restoring someone who becomes so deeply ensnared by this, their sin that they will not repent. They also say, yes, that if I am that person, I want you to love and pursue me this way. Don't just let me go. Don't just walk away. And everyone who joins our church says yes in both ways to that. I mentioned earlier, we have a church discipline policy. Um, if you have not read it or read it recently, you should read it, perhaps even this afternoon before our gathering tonight. Um, it contains some really excellent insight and wisdom from the scriptures that our elders have put together. And it's on our website in the leadership resources section, if you can track that down. But let me step out of long time ago and even our brother's life that we're going to be praying for um, this evening. Are you dabbling in something that could take you here? Are you flirting with some kind of sin, secret sin pattern that could end you up here? Because this is where all sin wants to take you, to a place where you deny Christ, if not by your words, by your actions. And no one can even tell by looking at your life that you're a believer. That's where sin, wants, that's where sin is built to take you. Are you dabbling with something that could lead you there? If you are, then, then you are here this morning 
to be free from that. Okay? That's why the divine coincidences happen, that you are here to hear this message. Listen to the wisdom of Proverbs. Okay? This is the timeless wisdom of the book of Proverbs. In chapter 28, it says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. Life will not go well for you. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So don't conceal anymore. Okay. Don't hide it in, in dark secret places. Before this day is out, maybe even before this service is out, sit down with someone you know and trust and say, I've got something I need to confess. Will you pray with me? And start the process of getting free. Get the mercy that God promises to you in the book of Proverbs. This process, you should know, is one of the hardest things our elders do. Um, it, is, it is agonizing, and we are deliberate about it. Our elders weep over this process when we have to walk through it with somebody. It, uh, it is not fun. Um, it, is not, it is not a fun process to go through. I've told you, I've talked about this before, that wandering sheep often don't want to be rescued, and you pursue them, and they are just as likely to flip their middle hoof at you and tell you where to go as respond with joy. Okay. Um, it is hard. But the real weightiness of this matter is what happens, what Jesus says next. Look, look at what Jesus says next. Related to this process we've been talking about, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And it sounds like one of those kind of cryptic statements that Jesus used to make, but it's closely connected to what he just taught. Okay? Dale Bruner put it really well. He said, binding and loosing is simply shorthand for what verses 15 through 17 said already about listening or not listening. The confronted brother or sister who listens to the church's warning is loosed by the church's pardon in Christ's name. The confronted one who flaunts the church's warning is bound in guilt by the church's censure. He says, our text stresses the obedient church's prayerful binding and loosing on earth is solemnly ratified by God in heaven and so that we, we speak for God in these matters. And so our elders um, are deeply burdened by this responsibility. And your prayers for us matter deeply about these things. Jesus continues, and he's still talking about all this. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, while there are many fabulous promises about prayer all throughout the Scriptures, this is probably not one of the general promises about prayer. It's specific to our context. Our tendency is to lift it out of the context of church discipline and make it whenever two or three together, you get what you want. It's kind of like that, um, you know, that was it State Farm commercial you know, where they're in trouble and like a good neighbor, State Farm is there and with a hot tub and they get whatever they want, right? If you just chant the words and there are two or three of you, you get what you want because we outnumber God. There are two or three of us, right? That's not how it works. Okay, that's not what he's teaching here. Um, here he's saying, it's interesting, it's been suggested, I think it's right, that the two or three 
here in agreement are the offender and the offended. They are being reconciled. And God is granting their request to be reconciled beautifully. He loves that. So much so that Jesus says, when they reconcile, those two or three come together in my name, I'm there. So you want to experience the presence of Jesus? Reconcile with someone. Jesus shows up according to his promise. When believers who've been estranged, reconcile. He loves that. It's his passion. But this takes us to that second question. How do we do this, we said? And what if it works, right? What if you go to someone and you share with them how they've wronged you and they repent and they want to be restored? And so what if you grant it? And then what if they do it again? This is what Peter seems to have in his mind. Peter always seems to think like us. He's so helpful. Peter says, Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times. And I'm sure Peter's going, because that would have been crazy, Jesus, seven times. That's unbelievable. But Jesus says, but 70 times seven. Okay. Um, see, Peter's thinking what anyone who has ever been sinned against repeatedly thinks. Anyone who has a brother thinks. How long do I have to forgive this guy, Right? Peter's thinking about what it means to be betrayed by someone you trust, whether that someone is an addict or a serial pornographer or a recurring liar or a thief or a gossip. He's thinking what anyone who's been wronged more than once must be thinking. How many times do I have to forgive this wrong that's being done to me over and over and over? How many times? And Peter makes an offer, a suggestion, Seven times, and that is really generous. Um, those of you who are parents, think about the seventh time your child disobeys you, right? Forgiveness is not the foremost thing on your mind at that point in time. Now, in, in their day, the rabbis uh, used to suggest that three times was sufficient. You could forgive someone for the same offense three times, and on the fourth time, you had exhausted your responsibility to forgive. So Peter is doubling the standing offer of the day. He's being more than generous. So when Jesus says, no, Peter, 77 times, and some of your Bibles say 70 times seven times, and know that the number isn't the point, okay? This is not an invitation to keep score. 75, 76, 77, you know. That's not what Jesus is saying. The point is, you forgive as often as it takes. You will always forgive. And when Peter hears Jesus say that, he must have gotten that deer in the headlights look and been thinking, seriously, 77 times? Like, more than 10 times my doubly generous officer, offer, rather, are you serious? And so Jesus does what he does best. He tells a story to rock Peter's world and ours. He tells this story. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts 
with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So what's a talent? We don't, we don't use that number today, and it's not exactly transferable into our day, but if you looked, a footnote in some of your Bibles will say that a talent, one talent was 20 years wages, one talent. So 10,000 talents, you do the math, it's 200,000 years wages, 200,000 years wages, and somebody tried to generate a number, 10 billion is what they came up with. Another suggestion was more like what your kids mean when they say a gazillion, right? It is an unpayable mountain of debt, okay? And when, when the disciples heard this teaching, their mouths would have dropped open. This is a staggering debt. This is, this is more befitting a nation than a person. And Jesus continues his story. He says, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring the master, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. So because he cannot pay this massive debt, his whole family and all his, it will be imprisoned and all his possessions will be sold. And so he makes this, this crazy promise. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Now, if I'm the master, I'm thinking, right, right. I'm going to give you a six-month extension and you're going to pay me back 200,000 years wages. Yeah, right. That's, that's really going to happen. And what I want you to see, though, in, in the mind of the servant is he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand that this is an unpayable debt. He thinks if he just has a little more time, he can work it off. He can cash in some stock. He can call in some debts. He can work it out. There's a way he can pay it. He can make it work. He doesn't get that this is an unpayable mountain of debt. Okay? But what happens next is even more staggering than the, than the debt. Watch this, this little statement. Listen to it closely. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Okay. He asks for time. Just give me a little time and I'll work it out. And what he gets is beyond his wildest dreams. He gets compassion and total, absolute forgiveness of the whole 10 billion of all all 200,000 years worth of debt. Now, I don't know about you, but this is my kind of master, right? If you're picking a master, and we're all picking a master, this is the master you want, okay? If he's that forgiving, this is the master I need, okay? Well, that same servant went out, and you get, the, you get the impression, that he just walks outside, 
And he finds, almost, it's like it immediately happens. He walks out from this amazing act of forgiveness, and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a debt, a hundred denarii. Again, not another unit of currency we don't use. A denarii is a day's wage. So this is a hundred days' wage. Let's say it's ten grand. Um, it's a significant debt, but it's payable. Right? I mean, it could be paid off. Um, if, you're, if you're the second servant that this guy just accosts and asks you to pay your debt, you run into him in the street, you have to be thinking, this is the perfect time for me to run into the guy that I owe 10000 to because he's just been forgiven $10 billion. He is in the best mood, the most generous time of his life. Not exactly. He seized him, and he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And so our forgiven servant now hears as he's choking this man, Almost exactly the same words that he used to procure such unbelievable mercy. You'd think he'd be having one of those deja vu moments, right? Hey, this sounds familiar to me. I, I think I've heard these words. Oh, yes, I just used them to get forgiven a mountain of debt. But maybe, I should, maybe I should pass it on to this very payable debt that's owed me. No. Now it says that Jesus' story says he refused. And he went and put him in prison until he paid the debt. And now with the backdrop of that amazing forgiveness, the unforgiveness is almost even more unbelievable. How could you possibly do that? What kind of jerk does that? Who could have all his debt forgiven? 200,000 years of salary worth and then turn around and not forgive a sum that pales in comparison. Who would ever do such a thing, receive such lavish forgiveness and then not forgive? Well, that's exactly what the other servants in Jesus' story are thinking. This is what they say. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Well, that's quite a story. And the bottom line is it's pretty clear, isn't it? It's this, forgive as you have been forgiven or else, right? Um, but just to make sure that we don't miss it, Jesus steps out of the story and he delivers the punchline in one blunt sentence. Jesus says to his disciples, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So, in case it eluded you, in Jesus' story, the Master is God the Father, right? And we 
are the servants for giving a $10 billion debt. That's where we are in the story. That's where we should find ourselves. But that may be hard for some of you because you don't see your sin as an unpayable mountain of debt. You think you can work it off. You think if you just have a little more time, and maybe you take a couple more classes or you read your Bible a little more or your perfect attendance in church or you serve in the children's ministry, you can work it off. You can work off your debt on your own. It's not really an unpayable mountain. It's something that if you just get a little more time, you can work it off. Um, Jesus is clear. It is hopelessly unpayable. You cannot pay it. There's not enough time for you to pay it. But there is one who will pay it for you. And if you were to just flip your Bibles a couple pages in Matthew, Matthew tells the story that Jesus went to the cross, not because of his sin, but because of ours. Not to pay for his sin, but to pay for ours. They stretched him out on the tree for our sin. He went there out of love for us. He's pursuing the one. He's pursuing you. So have you, have you been forgiven your debt before God? Are you trying to work it off? Trying to do the right thing so God will finally forgive you and accept you? Are you sure that that transaction has happened and your debt's been forgiven? Not by what you've done, but by what Christ has done. And if you're not sure, we'll have leaders down here to close the service, some of our elders and pastors, who'd love to just help you make that transaction so that you can be free of bearing your own sin and paying for it and trust Christ who has borne and paid for it for you. But if you have embraced that mercy, if your debt's been forgiven, you've had that conversation with your master, your father, and you've walked away scot-free, the question, obvious one, is are you passing that on to people who need your forgiveness? Is that grace flowing through you? Is there anybody that you're not talking to? Anybody that you're holding a grudge against? Anybody that you're not willing to forgive? Is there somebody that's lied to you or about you or somebody that's betrayed a trust or somebody that's cheated you? Somebody that's messed with your kids? Somebody that's stolen from you or gossiped about you or overlooked you? Maybe they've done it over and over again. See, you probably have a very legitimate 100 denarii debt that's owed to you. And it's very real and it's very painful. But it only, it only makes sense when you push it up against that $10 billion debt that you've been forgiven. Okay. It's only then that you have the fuel to pass that forgiveness on. Paul would later write in Romans 12, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, do everything you can. Live peaceably with all. Be at peace with all men. Is that true of you? Have, you? have you extended forgiveness to everyone? 
Does the person that you're not speaking to know that you are waiting with arms open wide just to say, hey, I forgive you. Please forgive me. Please. Do your family know that? Do your friends know that? The people you've been estranged from, people who've wronged you, do they know that? Do they know that because you've been forgiven a mountain of sin against a very, very holy God that you are just loaded up to forgive them and you can't wait? You won't wait. I want to make sure today that we notice as we look at these kind of classic instructions that Jesus gives the church on church discipline or church rescue, that we see how they're bracketed, right? Beforehand, we have the story about the father who's like a shepherd, and he, he leaves the 99 to find the one, to rescue the one, how he loves the one. We are to search like the father. We are to have a troubled heart for the one who's fallen into sin, who's gone astray. And then after the instructions, but we see that the father is like, is like a master who forgives an unpayable debt. Lifetime after lifetime's worth of debt he'd forgive. And we are to forgive like the father, not keeping score, not keeping track, not waiting for the other, but passing on the forgiveness, the lavish forgiveness that we've received. These stories are the context, the necessary context for the instructions Jesus gives about how our church practices church discipline and church rescue. And they need to shape us tonight as we gather in this room at 6 o'clock. Now, I have a bit of a preaching problem this morning, and if you haven't figured it out already, that's this logo that's staring at me on the screen, and I'm supposed to be introducing a series on Journey of Faith, our capital campaign that pays off the building that we're enjoying this morning. We're so close. We've paid off 75% of our debt. Okay, we're getting really, really close. But my text has absolutely nothing to do with that when you first read it. Um, but if you read it and think about it again, it, it may have every, absolutely everything to do with that. And here's why. I think that generosity, charity of resources, flows from a charitable heart. And a charitable heart is fueled by one thing, okay? an awareness of the grace that's been given to it that there's been a mountain of forgiveness that's come your way. A generous God has lavished grace on you. How, how could you damn it up? How could you stop it from flowing to someone else? In forgiveness and in giving. It, it's like that old hymn writer, he put it this way, he says, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away, and now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. That's, that's what fuels all generous, charitable acts, whether forgiveness or giving in our hearts. We call it the gospel, the good news that Christ paid for our sins and lavished generous grace on us. And that's what fuels charity towards others. 
getting charity from God because we recognize that we owe an unpayable debt and we cannot do it. We cannot do it. We need a Savior. And He has become ours in Christ. And I believe that a charitable heart is safeguarded by acts of giving our treasure away. Jesus said that where our treasure is, that's where our hearts will go. And so I think that giving, even giving to our capital campaign at the church, has a way of freeing us from the centripetal force that is me, that pulls everything to me. Um, And this is a huge blessing to our church. It strengthens our church. As I said, we're We've paid 75% of our debt out. If we finish well, in just a few years, we'll be debt-free and free to serve God in kingdom ways that are going to be amazing. Um, This week, you'll receive an email with a newsletter that has some encouraging comments from people in our congregation about this process, why they're involved in it. It'll have important financial information to help you see what the remaining need is and for you to begin to pray about what your commitment to the coming year will be to help our church become debt-free. But it's, it's so much more than that, and we'll hear about that in the next couple weeks. It is a spiritual practice that strengthens our church and safeguards a generous heart, a charitable heart in all things towards others. So I hope you'll pay close attention to that this week, and I'd like to pray for us um, as we close our time. Lord, have mercy on us. Our default value is me. And it is not in us if we've been wronged to be the one who seeks to forgive. It seems like they should come to us. And yet, Father, you sought that one. You chased that one. You loved that one. Help us. Help us to pass on, as often as is needed, the grace that's been given to us. And Lord, mark our church with generosity and charitableness in all things, financial and in our relationships. Mark us with the love of Christ. Um, Help us find our joy there above all things. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.